I shit you not, we would have sent Cassie to space. <laughs> Welcome to episode five of the Word of the Witnesses. We are a 12 Monkeys Rewatch pod. We are your co-hosts. I am Beep, and I'm joined as always by Cece. And we have an extremely special episode for you today because we were lucky enough to be joined by the co-creator, showrunner, and director of the best TV series finale of all time, Terry Metalis. You all submitted wonderfully insightful questions. Some of them were amazing, big picture, thematic questions, and others were really smart, kind of nitty gritty plot questions. So we worked hard on trying to include as many as we could, and sometimes we condensed, but we were lucky enough that Terry spent about an hour and a half talking with us about this show. So you are in store for a real treat. Yeah, we actually couldn't get to all the questions. There were just so many great ones. He has graciously agreed to rejoin us. And I just, I know that Cece and I are just so utterly grateful for the attention that he's given the podcast. We just think it's so cool that he would, you know, acknowledge the fans of his show the way he does. And he's just so kind and and generous of his time. So we are very, very thankful. And hopefully we will be able to bring him to you again in the future. We are really excited. As, as always, there's a feels disclaimer. Our first question's a doozy. So please make sure you have a box of tissues and perhaps a stiff drink in hand. With no further ado, here's our interview with Terry Metalis. Thank you so much for joining us, Terry. Oh, it's my pleasure. We basically got a lot of questions from listeners, but the overwhelming sentiment that people were quite adamant that they wanted us to pass along was how much this show means to them on a really deep And I think you see a lot of it just in terms of reactions on Twitter on a very deep emotional level. So I think Uh, the the first thing everyone expressed was just a lot of gratitude for that. And there was, yeah, there was some really great, I think maybe the first question, since you've seen how much we have all cried because of this show, has this show ever made you cry? (laughs) It seems only fair. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Oh, for sure. I think... I love that. That's your first question. Do you ever cry watching <laughs> How narcissistic are you? Uh, no. you are you so? Um, uh, the, the answer is very. Uh, yeah, there there is. I mean, um, you know, there's a lot. Of, I think. Look, no one loves these characters more than me, and I think it was such a journey these four years, and you know. Telling the story and its themes about time and the people who are with you on that journey. And, you know, that's, it's one of the reasons I love television in some ways more than film right now is that you get this long form novel thing where you can tell the, tell these lives, you know, the story of these people's lives and you really get to know them. So saying goodbye to them and sending them off and, you know, there's, yeah, there there are bits in the show that to this day choke me up just because we got to tell that that story and then explored really interesting emotional themes. And, you know, not to mention that when you see it done, season four was maybe the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. It was it was I was exhausted. Everyone was exhausted. We did not have a big budget, but we wanted it to look gigantic. And in order to do that, you have to kill yourself. So, you know, 
season four was was hard and seeing it come together well as i think i could say it did is emotional you know it's like we did it there's a feeling of we did it and so so yes the answer is it's a long way of saying yes i joked up a few times <laughs> you have but, to specifically name at least one scene it's just the rule <laughs> um okay you know i uh when jones meets hannah for the first time that moment where she unmasks Brooke and Brooke has this, just this, it's weird because you, you're emotionally connected with Jones, but um, Brooke just has this face the second you see her, you immediately empathize and uh, connect with her as well within seconds, which is very rare. And that's just a moment that just, that always works and was planned from the beginning. I am. Um, I think, see, I just, now I gotta just probably go through from season one on. There's, a, there's, you know, season, the back, back chunk of season, season two, where we really start paying off a lot of the emotion. You know, Jennifer and Jennifer, I think mm-hmm. is a great when old Jennifer dies. Ugh. I think that is, you know, when she says, I love you, you know, that was, you know, it's just something you don't get to do on every show. <laughs> it is an older version of someone telling a younger version i love you when they when you know you're young you don't you don't feel that about yourself you may even have self-loathing and then cassie and cole when they finally get together and they're like i get choked up when big arcs kind of collide because i just i i I love the drama of it you know I, i think the end of of 212 when cassie and cole when Cassie sees Cole at the house, like I get goosebumps and get choked up at the same time mm-hmm. just because we were set that up. And, you know, it's a hard thing to do a love story without rolling your eyes. I wanted to make sure that we, we didn't overstay our welcome in, in the love story. So those Cassie and Cole things, they, they choke me up. And then God, you know, as a, as a parent in season three, you know, there's so much stuff with Cole and Cassie that, that get me Ramsey's death is always works stuff with Ethan. Now I'm just going through the whole thing. Season four. Uh, I really, my, one of my favorite moments in the show is Cole and Jones watching the first splinter and he puts his hand on Barbara's hand and they're watching the whole thing. He's like, I promise I'm going to be with you to the end on this. And the music comes up and they watch this, that, that, that scene gets me. And then, you know, finale, all sorts of stuff. Deacon's death. Yeah. This should not have been the first question because I'm legitimately about to yeah, yeah, yeah. cry. Uh, you know, and then and then the, uh, an episode that we had, we were terrified of, which is something you guys talk about all the time, is one minute more. That whole last letter from Hannah to Cole works so well, and you know, we we didn't know if we could pull it off. A lot of arguments in the writers' room about whether people were going to buy Matthew Cole and and Hannah and when I see all that come together, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really great piece. Yeah, I, you pulled it off. I have to say, like, as a mom listening to that and sort of the final words, it's just, I don't think I can ever watch it and not be really emotional because it just kind of gets at something really, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So just kind of picking up a little bit on, you wrote that beautiful piece in The Hollywood Reporter after the series finale about kind of getting at that theme of happily ever now. And another line that that stands out to me on rewatch is when Cassie says, it's the losing that haunts us. Mm. 
And so we were just wondering if you could... It's Sean's line. Was it? Yeah, Sean tried to wrote that, yeah. I really, I mean, that just gets at so much of what, in part, what the show's about and kind of coming to terms with that. And it's sort of central to what we all have to deal with in our lives. And we're just wondering if you could speak a little bit to that theme and if there were any other themes, big big picture themes that you guys had in mind as you were crafting the story. You know, it, it's interesting. Uh, I think it all came organically. I, I never was like, I didn't wake up and, you know, and certainly when, when, when Travis and I were coming up with the pilot, we didn't be like, so what is this really about? Um, because at first it was like, let's, well, the pilot was, let's get some popcorn and make a great time travel thriller. <laughs> and then as we dug deeper, my father passed during, during, while making the show. And it's just something that's always been in my mind. You know, it's like the theme of, I don't know if you know the musical Rent, which is just no day but today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that's a powerful statement. It's, you know, it's carpe diem. It, it's all that. It's and it's something that when it comes to time travel, it's just not you know you're so focused on going back and making a change or going forward, blah blah. It's like but now is probably the most important thing there is because you have everything you have now that you you know and and so I think when I think when my 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 father passed, it was you always be like well I had a moment where and I would tell myself that in those moments where I was like I should call my parents and tell them I love them and so it's sort of this thing that I subscribed to and it sort of organically came out. And in fact, when the finale script was written, the line happily ever now was not in the finale script. It wasn't until we were cutting and uh, I always knew, like I was like, we had to get the script done so we could shoot it. But I always knew whatever Cole, Cole's last uh, monologue was, it, we needed to stick the point hard. Um, and in fact, we tried it you know, originally Jennifer, we tried it with Jennifer and it was like, it just wasn't right to do it with Jennifer. It had to be Cole's voice as the book ends. Um, and so I was just driving home one night and hap- the, word, the words happily ever now seemed just like the right way to end the show. And so that's where that came from. As far as other themes, I feel like redemption is a thing that that we uh, we really explored on almost all of our characters. I think it was about Cole and you know the 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 the, the who you are today is not who you are tomorrow. So you know we make mistakes. You know and can we can we can we we're not we might not necessarily undo our mistakes, but we might not be the same person who made those mistakes. Um, and so that new person can deserve a second chance. And so that was Cole's arc was him constantly beating himself up for the horrible things that he did, uh, with Ramsey out in the apocalypse. And then, you know, we started to explore it with Cassie and Jones and, you know, the whole thing became about that. So yeah, redemption, I guess. And love, you know, you know, just the, you know, what it means to telling that love story uh, and trying, you know, to believe it and really feel the chemistry that that's something that was, you know, we explored the nature of relationships, you know, it was constant, you know, television, ping pong, you know, questions in, in the writer's room and with the network in the studio, because I'm sure there were times where the network and studio would be like, can't Cassie and Cole get, can't they start boning again? And the stakes are like, <laughs> Well, you know, I remember at one point uh, we even talked about them 
and we had them in the dance scene. It was in the season three when they went back in time to uh, Victorian era and they did the dance thing and they kissed each other. And that was like, we wanted to bring the romance back, but it's kind of hard to, kind of hard to be like, let's get sexy when our kids <laughs> might have destroyed the world. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, the wow. states just don't feel like, I'm sure they did, but I don't know if we need to see that, you know? And so like, there was like this, there was that moment in season four where it was like, I think we can, we can go back to them doing that. So, you know, exploring different aspects of, of love and relationships, by the way, may, they probably maybe didn't for a long, long time, you know, and that's okay too. You know, people pull away and come back to each other and there's reasons for that, you know, that so it, it's, uh, yeah. And so those are all the things we tried to, explore. I'm sure there's tons of others that I'll think of once they hang out. Yeah, there's one thing. I mean, I, I think we talked about this on a pod because I'm, you know, I am an unapologetic romantic. I love the romantic story in this show, but it always what felt different about it is that it felt adult, mm-hmm. you know, like that you can watch it as somebody, you know, who's 40 and been married for a long time. And you and TV shows often just kind of dwell in that will they or won't they and don't explore like what happens after Right, like when you're dealing with obstacles and tragic things that happen in life, and I, like for me personally, it's what I really enjoyed about it. Like what you, I mean, other than like Friday Night Lights, there's not a ton of shows that let you kind of just the drama isn't whether or not they love each other. It's it's confronting what you have to in life, like together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, And you know, I don't think I think there was this rare thing that happened on this show that allowed us to do that, which is we weren't. A giant hit, but we, what we, what we did, we did well. So the studio and the network were the, the brilliant execs that we worked with, um, Stacey Fung and, and Letitia Baylor, like, and Scott Baylor and people, they, they, they were along for the ride and they never were like, we just want, can't they have more love? Can't they, uh, can't they hook up in this? And, and we were lucky because that is not the norm in, and you can sometimes see it definitely on, on network television where you're like, oh, they just shoehorned a thing here that we didn't need. So we got to, we got to tell that, I think, maturely, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I will say that if we had more time, um, I think the things that I, if I could pick one kind of show that I, I wish we did more of, it would have been more Cole and Cassie team up. Like, there's nothing better than, um, than that chemistry that they had uh Aaron and Amanda and when uh and, and and when we really really wrote to their voices I think back on like 405 when they go back to the 60s mm-hmm. and you know they're in the car and she's like uh there's I, there's some of that dialogue I did because I, I whenever Cassie was the most sarcastic it was probably me <laughs> and and that's probably the closest to Amanda like Amanda Amanda's voice is is super intelligent and sarcastic and observant and um she's she's fiercely intelligent and writing to that with Cole sort of like nah eh, fuck it we're gonna go run in and kill people <laughs> like they they just they it just works so well. And so that I do miss, I, I wish we could have done more of that, that kind of show episode. Well, speaking of Cassie, I mean, we know, and I think a, a part of the reason that are a lot of women are so drawn to the show is there are such strong and complex female characters. 
Uh, is that something that you guys consciously went into the project wanting to accomplish? Because, um, Je- you know, Jennifer is is not Jeffrey. No. So did you guys do that on purpose? It wasn't. Uh, so, no. <laughs> it just is organic. <laughs> uh, and and, and, and I'm, I'm glad uh, that that's what it was. So the, 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 the idea for turning Jeffrey into Jennifer was there's just nobody should have to play Jeffrey Goins again when Brad Pitt did it perfectly. Mm. You know what I mean? There's just like, there's no one who's going to come in. And uh, in fact, early on when the show was in development, Aaron Stanford was like, I want to play Jeffrey Goins because uh, I was working with him on Nikita. And, and so we were going to do Jeffrey. And I remember it was, it was in the pilot uh, stage um, was the end scene. And we had Jeffrey Goins in there. I'm like, this isn't right. This isn't right. And I forget it was, it might have been my wife or something. I remember talking. I was like, maybe. And it was like, should be a woman. And I called the rights holder, you know, Atlas, um, who made the original film. I'm like, look, we're never going to do Brad Pitt again. We should let some, we should let some amazing woman take this, take this on and make it their own, you know, and everybody was on board. So, and then as far as the rest of the characters, uh, I don't know. I, I never set out to be like, Hey guys, let's make a strong woman today. Like, I don't, like, it's just a character. Like, I, like, don't make a shitty character and it won't be, you know what I mean? Like, um, <laughs> so and, true. So it, and, and, and so, you know, I think, and, and, and a lot of it was Cassie, Cassie probably, it's the whole show is mostly Cassie's point of view, you know, and from the get go, she is, she should be just a great character and Jones should be strong and Jennifer should be strong. I don't know. I just, we never set out to do that. Um, and then, but by the end of it, you look and you're like, well, now we've got Olivia, we have Hannah, we have Jennifer, uh, we have Jones, we have Cassie. Um, well, yeah, well, they're all great. <laughs> and they all have a, a, a distinct thing. So it was just something that just, I think happens with, you know, should happen organically, you know. Mm, I like that. Just no shitty characters, period. Because <laughs> that's what women are like. I mean, we're complex. Yeah. yeah, I don't. I don't. You know, it's always strange to me. Like, well, this time we're going to do it with a strong woman character. Like, all right, yeah, I know. It. it <laughs> uh, you know, I go back to it's raised on aliens. You know, on Ripley. She's the coolest badass. Like, she. They, they never play Ripley as anything less. You know, and that's, you know, going back to 1984, you know, so just never been the kind of storytelling that I'd be interested in writing that didn't have those kinds of characters. Awesome. It's still pretty rare, though. <laughs> like, so rare. I mean, I, I honestly put, like paused in, in the middle of season four. And is it is it daughters that it's the going, you know, Emma and, and Hannah. Hannah and back and yeah. forth. And I really, I mean was conscious of the fact like I can't believe this many women are driving the story so you know and it kind of it's funny because it now changes the way you watch anything else because you're like well, where where are all the women <laughs> so <laughs> yeah 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 I mean you, you can't you can't always do it I mean you know it's if you're doing Band of Brothers that one's that's gonna be harder to to do but that's that's okay you know <laughs> there's different kinds of stories uh to to tell but yeah, you know, I, I'm trying to think of what I want, you know, Handmaid's Tales beyond, um, beyond a, 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 a woman's story. Um, 
I haven't started Hill House. I hear that's amazing. Amazing. <laughs> I need to. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't watched a lot of television right now because I've been writing. But yeah, I, I, I hear that a lot. When you when you get to Hill House, we would love to hear. There's there's a scene in Hill House that is. Um, I think anyone who's a Twelve Monkeys fan is like, wow, we've heard this debate before. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's so good. But I think what you guys did, and it's exactly what you said, because don't get me wrong, we love the men on this show. This is not like, you know, girl power thing, because it's exactly what you said. We just want to see both. We want justice done for both. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I wish the sh- our show was more diverse. That's something going back that, you know, I wish we could have figured out. The problem is when you were telling a family story and you it started with these Caucasians. It's kind of, you know, it was, we even, yeah, we, we had to go, we had to go back and back and back and forth, but it, that, that's something that I, I really do wish we tried. Um, that's not enough to say that we tried. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was something that, um, we didn't do as well on as we, as we should have. Yeah. Although I'm, I'm Latina and it meant a lot in 2018 to watch Kirk on screen. Well, that's something everybody, Kirk. Yeah, exactly. People, everybody thinks just Kirk is a white guy sometimes. I'm like, no, he's the total, what's, you know, his name is Kirk Acevedo, man. <laughs> <laughs> he's about as, uh, there you go. Yeah. It's like when they ask Jones, like, well, that's clearly not German. It's like, Acevedo, that is it's not yeah. European. Right. Well, and it was clear, you know, his name is Jose, but it, it's, you know. Kirk he, he hated cl- that name, by the way. He, <laughs> he hated it so much, but it was uh, an homage to the original film mm-hmm. where uh, Cole had a friend named Jose, who was also, they sent back in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were like, oh, so make it Jose. Yeah. If we actually, you raised sort of um, redemption in terms of character arcs before, and we were actually, it's one of the things we were curious about, that if you could tell us sort of your take on each of the characters, you know, looking at the series as a whole, what was their long-term arc? And you mentioned redemption for Cole and also a bit for Cassie and for Jones. Um, what about Jennifer? What's Jennifer's arc? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think Jennifer's arc is pretty is I, I'm crazy. Maybe I'm not crazy. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think is, is, and, you know, I think she, she was probably a bit more selfish, um, and easily influenced and manipulated probably in the beginning of season one because of that crazy, uh, where she, you know, um, when she's lost, you know, striking woman comes and brushes her hair and is like, I'll take care of you and blah, blah, blah. And next thing you know, she's got a plane full of viruses, virus. Um, and I think by the end, she's much more meeting her older self and knowing she's going to command this army of badass women and becoming one of the team. I think she very much has an opinion on her own, of her own and, and comes into her own. Uh, so I think that's ultimately Jennifer's arc. You know, yeah. I loved old Jennifer. Old Jennifer was like one of my favorite characters. Oh, she's so great. Yeah. If only we could all have that older version of ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> to tell yeah. us. Yeah. I, I wanted to hang out with old Jennifer all day long. <laughs> she was just kind of confident and had seen it all. And she was great. How about Deacon? Well, I think Deacon goes from, uh, I'm out for myself and I got to take what's mine. And, you know, the meek don't get to inherit 
the earth and fuck them to know there's a greater purpose there. I have, you know, I am part of a, a team. I am part of a family. I want to be. And, it, you know, and all that stems from his childhood. And, you know, he had a brother and his father was abusive and comes on to this, this, um, this team splinter and, you know, makes a real difference and kind of can see, you know, life's kind of shitty. Maybe I, maybe I can make a change here. Um, and then, you know, by the end is he is, you know, I do it all over for them because he's just not that guy that we met in the beginning of, uh, 104 of Atari. He's just not a, not out for himself with a cigar and a swagger. <laughs> and, you know what I mean? So great. I like the way that he learned to lead without being in charge. Hmm. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's good. Just by example, you know. Right. Mm-hmm. How about Olivia? Well, Olivia, I mean, you know. <laughs> Olivia is a, a, a fascinating character for me, and that's why I love that you're watching the origin story of the villain and not know, and you don't know it. Mm-hmm. You're, you're watching this devout follower of, um, of this ideology this religious, you know, cult. And then she doubts the leader of the cult who she <laughs> does not know is herself in the future. Um, and then because of that doubt and that anger rises to the occasion to take over that cult, to be like, surprise, it was you all along. And then it's, uh-oh, if it was me all along, I have to fulfill these religious promises that I have not only told myself, but an army of followers. Um, so I've got to, I've got to deliver on our paradise and I don't know how. Uh, and so that's really, really interesting drama, I think. Um, and then she finds a way, um, you know, at the cost to herself. I mean, look at her by the end of the, by the end of season four, she's got veins and her eyes are so she's been plugging into the time stream, trying to be this artificial primary. It's just a cool, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I, it, she's such a phenomenal antagonist and it's sometimes disturbing how there will be scenes where I'm just really, I feel a lot of empathy for her. And then you have to stop and be like, but wait, <laughs> she's trying to <laughs> yeah. destroy the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and it and she probably has the least of a of a of a point. I think Cassie's point of view at the end of it is like she kind of gets the red forest um, from an emotional perspective. But I think for for Olivia, she's just she's just damaged. And on this you know freight train, I'm like, oh, this is what I'm going to do. Fuck it. So yeah, it, it, and and it was it was really cool to. To, to find that character, to find Olivia. Um, by, the, by the top of season three, you know, really, when you really get to know her, um, it was great to do. Yeah, it does seem, because it seems like like whether it's Shaw or the Pallid Man, they it's more of a, a belief that's driving them. Um, and in season four with Olivia, that doesn't seem like what it's about. Because she doesn't, she ends up, she doesn't actually have any perfect moments that she would want to live in because she hasn't really right. lived. Right. Yeah. In, which is what she says to Cassie. Mm-hmm. But it's, in some ways, it's it's all about, ego's not the right word, but, you know, she set out, she promised this thing and that's what's going to happen. Um, so, yeah. And yeah. she's always just the little girl in the cage. 
and maybe she thinks the red forest will set her free in some way from that that little that box that she was raised in yeah now we have this discussion a lot offline with friends but Terry, what do you think the Red Forest is? Oh, my God. You guys are hitting me with hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> what do I think it is? There's conflicting views. You know, both sides. Like, yes. from, from the hero side, all we see is torture and death. But we have this other group who's like, is it living in a moment? Is it, you know, is it kind of... Alternate reality. Whatever you want it to. Exactly. Like an yeah. AU. I mean, what ultimately is it? Or do we know? Well, I, I think we can't really know because we never saw it, right? Mm-hmm. Which is which is which is good. I think they believe. Well, in the Red Forest, you can decide which parts of your life you want to live and whatever. I, how could we know if that's true? You know, um, we we you know, uh, to me, it seems like if it's everything at once. Well, I don't think you want everything at once. It sounds terrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's death, it's pain with love, and you know. I, you know, I don't know if that's quite the right, the right thing. You know, if it's the perfect world, I don't know. It sounds kind of delusional. You know, there's, there was, there's the, 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 the end of the, the show is intentionally, you know, allows you to, de- to decide that last image, whether or not Cassie turned off the, um, the machine at Titan. But there's only one right choice. <laughs> I, 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 you know, and so there are there are two writers who have dark souls on our show, uh, <laughs> Sean Sean Treader and Kristen Rydell, who are like, no, it's the Red Forest, um, which is great because you know you want the debate. I I'm not sure it makes sense because in the, it, the, their rationale is well, it's all perfect at the end. I'm like, yeah, but then why did Jones have to die? Why did Jones have to die? Why did Cole have to get in the machine? Why wouldn't just immediately snap to? And then, and then, you know, they're like, well, the Red Forest would need you to believe. I'm like, wait a minute. What new rules are we inventing about the Red Forest needing us to believe we're in, we're, you know, we're in our real paradise? Um, so it, it, it is in some ways up to the viewer because, you know, the, the science was the Hartle Hawking state which was this moment where there's no time it's all this it's all all a now a jumbled now a hellish now and i don't even know how deep into science you could get onto that in into that so i don't think it's paradise but maybe i don't know maybe you could do that is that not helpful not helpful no it no it actually is it's ex- i feel like i've had this exact it's comforting to know that we've had exactly the same com- yeah. like conversation going back and forth but but wait a second like i thought it was one perfect moment but now you can create an alternative reality but but you don't know because nobody knew right because it was like the leap of faith how could anyone know right now when you go back and watch, I'm curious, how early on did you all consider that sort of leaving it up to interpretation that possibly it was ultimately Cassie who is the true witness? Because there are definitely um, moments, gosh, even in season two, where where the, you see the witness taking Aaron's face and then Cole's face where he's talking, you know, you, you start to hear sort of the first time, like the rationale for the Red Forest or even Cassie and Thief. When Ethan comes to talk to her, that on rewatch, it, it makes it makes me a little uncomfortable. 
So how early <laughs> were you all? Was that sort of more of like a season three, season four? No, no. I mean, it, it really goes to kind of, I mean, it starts for, if you're talking about Cassie specifically, mm-hmm. it really starts about episode, it starts after Cassie thinks she blew Cole up in season one. She goes on with her life with Aaron and then Cole comes back and it's not over. And it's, it's from that moment on that when she pulls the gun on, um, uh, what's his name? The scientist, the Markridge scientist, it, she finds Oliver Peters. Oliver Peters. Oh my God, I can't believe you guys know better than I do now. So <laughs> Oliver, it, it, it's at that moment that you see she's not do no harm anymore. She's not like she's thinking on this, this different, you know, this other level now and considering all the things she's never considered before. So you're just following what I, what I think is, is I hope good drama in that. And, and I, you know, it kind of drives me crazy because at the beginning of season two, she goes and lives in the apocalypse and, you know, at this Cole has decided to back his buddy in the present day who hung out with the army of the 12 monkeys for decades. Um, and, uh, and so at the top of season two, she's, she's not really that feeling that great about Cole. It drives me crazy. The, like, there are fans to this day who are like, why is Cassie such a bitch? And it drives, man, if it drives me crazy, you should, you should ask Amanda about it. We will fight anyone (laughs) that Uh, you have that problem with. Send them our way. (laughs) And there's so many, and it's like, why are you not seeing her point of view on this? How can you not see that she would absolutely be like, fuck you? Mm-hmm. No. You know, and and I think, anyway, uh, it's just to, to digress. It, 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 so in, it, Cassie has really been the conduit to explore, explore all that. So I don't, I, now I forget what your question was. So, but <laughs> I don't know if I answered it or just... Talking. Yeah, it's I when you go back, I get you know, we when you go back and hear that that was some of the fan, in some ways it doesn't surprise me because I feel like when women in particularly like television drama, when they become more complex or do things that maybe like the, you know, the audience isn't in their shoes, but is not the stance they would take, they seem to catch more flack than male characters. Yeah, but this is coming from women fans too. That's the thing that drives me. I'm like, what are you? And and maybe somewhere along the line, there's a line or two that we made her a little bit too harsh. But I I stand by it. Like I think I think her pers- her perspective is not forced at all. I no. think you go and you live in that apocalypse. You lived in that world, um, and this person who changed your life kind of has decided to change their mind about what they want to do about all this, I think you're pretty mad. You know, Mm -hmm. I think there's a tension there. Absolutely. And that's also when, I mean, I was honestly always like, you love Cassie in season one and you, she's, she feels sort of like your entry point into the story as the viewer. But when she really started to fascinate me that it was in season two, right? Where you're seeing how the future world has impacted her and you're like getting all of this like car crash um, conflict. So yeah. Well, you know, when we get to season two, we will be, there will be a lot of Cassie love because I know (laughs) it's something we are pretty passionate about. That's great. I look forward to that. What about Ramsey's arc? That was the last person we had. Oh yeah. To go back to. Ramsey's arc. Well, I mean, God, um, 
Well, Ramsey goes from, you know, hey, I'm supporting my brother, you know, to wait a second. I, I can't support my brother because it means something very dear to me. My son um, will be erased. And um, it's interesting because there are the reactions of, of from, from Ramsey's arc were like, were very different. Those who did not have kids were like, this is fucking stupid. He hardly knows his kid. Um, to the people who had kids was like, I get it. I get it. Yeah, you look into your kid's eyes and you're like, am I just going to erase the world? Um, maybe this is how it's supposed to be. Um, and so I think it was, you know, bringing him through that whole story to losing his kid, to turning on his brother, um, to essentially knowing he's going, you know, by the, by, it, it really finishes up in the finale, um, his arc, which I like quite a bit is when Cole brings him back mm-hmm. and Cole's going to be like, yeah, so I killed you and I'm going to die. <laughs> and Hey, guess what? I got a kid and Olivia killed him too. And, um, we've got to let all the shit go and do the right thing together. Um, and him 100% being on board for that, you know, um, I think it was, we had to, you know, he kind of is crazy by the time, by the top of season three. Um, in, in ways that you totally would be if you were zapped back in time and you had to live with a cult and you had to live with the guilt of I'm going to end the world, um, but I'm doing it for the right reasons. Well, my God, maybe I'm not doing it for the right reasons. And then, you know, I don't deserve redemption, but my brother gives me redemption. There's just a lot to take on. So I think he was crazy and I think he's very sane. Um, and, 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 you know, it really comes down to that hug, you know, with Cole mm-hmm. and Ramsey, you know, and it's like, it's like, it's that television thing and real life thing where it's like, I have a feeling if you could jump into my brain and I could jump into your brain, we would get this a lot easier. And, um, you know, that calm down hug, you know, I think probably it's just something we all could use. <laughs> yeah. Were, so you mentioned earlier that you, if you, if you all had had more time, we would have spent more time with Cassie and Cole sort of partners on missions. Were there mm-hmm. any other stories, um, plot lines, things you would have done with characters that you all considered that, but you ended up not having the time for? I think, yes. The, the, the map that the, the, you got to see the whole story, you know? But it very, I mean, it's, it's probably, it's likely that like, if we knew we could have as much time as we wanted, we would have, uh, spent a little bit more time in season three with Cole and Cassie looking for their son, exploring some of the other characters and things. And then that season would have ended with, we're going there, they go rogue. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to go find our son, leave us the fuck alone. Mm. That would have been, that would have been a whole season. And then the next season, um, which would have, would have probably have been, um, Team Splinter versus Colin Cassie for a good amount of time. Um, it's awesome that you just get right to it in the next episode they're fighting. But I mean, how great would it have been to see more of Deacon and Hannah? Hannah now a traveler, like what's her, you know, that jump into her, her, her skin for a second. And now she's going back to, She's dressing in clothes from the 1950s to go hunt. Now she's becoming a time traveler with Deacon. Like you could have spent a whole episode with those two. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then in the whole episode from Colin Cassie's point of view is how do we do this on our own with just the word of the witness? Um, so 
you would have you would have spent time that you would have spent time uh we would have done that we would have that would have been a whole season um and then same thing in you know season four there's i mean i would have loved to have spent more time in um the middle ages you know olivia back there um finding the origins of the army of the 12 monkeys with uh with that primary and um there's lots of things. There's tons of stories that we did not do. There was never a time in the writers' room where we were like, "Well, what do we do now?" We we had it we had it all mapped out. We had um, this amazing buffet of options. Um, there's one that was completely batshit and just didn't fit into the arc that we had designed for season four that I really wanted to do, but it would have. I swear to God, I, I shit you not. We would have sent Cassie to space, <laughs> and it was wait, dope. Uh, wait, can you tell us more about that? Why Cassie in space? Yeah. Okay. So at the time, I really got to. I have to go dig into the notes, but like I, I and and I, I was the probably without question the most enthusiastic about this in the writers' room. Everybody's like, I don't think we could do this. So you wouldn't. It's not what you think. It's basically <laughs> they were looking for the location of this. The primary, we'll call it the primary machine, because at that time, it, 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 in the writing process, it wasn't necessarily. Um, there was the, we had talked about it maybe being outside of time, somewhere, and you oh. needed some geothermal blah 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 coordinates to to find it. And so I I I, I can't exactly remember why they come to discover that. Somewhere on on the uh, International Space Station, at some point, they had done a global study looking down at the planet that would have given them the information they needed. So they go to, um, and it, this all was going to take place in 2045 or 2044, wherever we were. And they go, they have to go to the control, you know, that just call it mission control or whatever for now, and. There's, there's overrun by scavs and the mission fails. They think they can just get it from, and they, and to use time travel, they think they can go back in time, um, to, to get this information. I'm pitching this very badly. Anyway, the bottom line is they're running out of time. There's some time clock on it. And so the, the last ditch late in the episode, um, idea is we can send Cassie up there for 45 seconds and we would have to make shift a fucking spacesuit that she can be in <laughs> and breathe awesome. in and for 45 <laughs> seconds only that she could go pull this drive or whatever it is out of the space station now but it would be the space station in 2045 which means you know there were dead people up there there were dead astronauts up there so she would splinter in and it's dark and it's dusty and it's just her flashlight beam and then she's we would ever float through and then bam, a corpse, rotting corpses, or I don't even know what, I guess if there's oxygen, yeah, is in her, you know what I mean? And it's just 45 seconds of, oh my God, they just sent her to fucking space. Oh. Um, <laughs> I would watch and, that. And, oh, and, um, and then she's, you know, and, but we do it like, so there's oxygen, we play it super grounded that this is the, the craziest, most batshit plan they've ever done. And to, and then you play the fun of it is it works in 45 seconds. Later, she comes out, you know, you've seen the sequence, you know, it's a nail biter, and she comes into the machine, she's like, I just went to space, you know, with a big <laughs> smile. And we, we totally, we, 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 we would have pulled it off. Um, 
But it just, we only had 10 episodes. It's do that or do go back to World War II and, you know, and this is, you know, World War II and doing all that is so much better for the, the narrative and the whole thing. And, um, but it would have, that's something we've totally, I'll save it for a graphic novel maybe if someday everybody, if somebody wants to make it. Oh man. So, so we're just like now speechless thinking about Cassie in space. <laughs> Oh man! But barely, you know what I mean. She's like yep. barely. It's like you just play it super grounded, and like it's so. And it's and you don't advertise it. You don't put it in any of the trailers or the commercials, so that by the time you get to, there's one thing we could do, and they're taping her up with duct tape on the thing. You're like, oh my god, oh my god, they're going to splinter her up there. <laughs> it, I, I I think it would have been really satisfying. Yeah. Well, now I'm sad. I know. <laughs> I'm I'm writing it in my head now. <laughs> we, you know, there's there's bunch of, there's um there's some things we just couldn't crack. Um, there was uh, we always wanted to do a heist in three time periods. Um, in fact, that was basically the idea for four hundred five. I think it was a it was a bank heist before it became the auction. Was that the the word of the witness was in this this vault at a bank at this time? But half the team had to go back to build a tunnel underneath the bank so that when Deacon and Jennifer go in to rob the bank, there's a way for them to escape, but both missions fail and they have to do something else. And it was just kind of, it never, you know, and, and, and what was cool about it was you're planning it in the future where you can go to the bank and be like, Oh, well, there's a wall here. There's a wall here. Okay. This is how we'll do it. There's nobody around. You can walk right into the bank. Then you're playing it in the present day where Jennifer and Deacon are, mid-heist and then you're going back to when the bank is early constructed in the 1940s or whatever it is and you're telling it that way it would have been a production nightmare um (laughs) but that would have been a cool episode you would have you would have seen that one and then we had these i'll let i'll probably you know what you guys should have like sean tretta or or chris on at some point and there was a really amazing couple of characters uh, villains that we had that probably if should there have been a season five or six you would have seen them they were called in the writer's room monkey see monkey do and oh, they were this duo these villains duo that one of them one of them existed 15 seconds in the future i gotta remember this it's like one of them existed like a minute in the future ahead of the other one so that they could see what's going to happen like in a fight Say they're going to fight Colin Cassie. So, meanwhile, <laughs> I got to remember this because there's a whole script written about it. Monkey Doo was 60 seconds in the past and was could see the alternate future. It was like that, that it was being transmitted back to him some way through these glasses. So he could see what was going to happen. So he would be able to counter Colin Cassie. And I forget, it was something like that. It was this really great concept that we spent way too much time in the writer's room breaking our brains trying to figure out how that would work. Um, and I think there was a script that we threw out. I think Chris tried it. Uh, but they were they were cool. They were cool characters. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Okay, but did you really call them Monkey See Monkey Duo? Because... <laughs> monkey Do. Monkey See Monkey Do. Either way. You have to call them Duo. <laughs> Either way. Monkey See Monkey Duo. Yeah, I mean, that's what we... Uh, we had all sorts of weird temp names, you know. Pallet Man was like, you know, that was just, no one should know his name, Pallet Man. They never say that. They never call him Pallet Man. Although uh, Elliot Jones calls him Pallet at one point. It's just fun. How, how did you guys keep 
I mean, I think the thing we are always marveling at is how complex the show is to the point that it, like, breaks our brains often, but also has these unbelievably rich characters, and there's so much focus on character development. And and getting both of those things in one show is, re- like, as a viewer, I feel like is really, really rare. So okay. how did... I don't know if you can answer this, but like, how did you all like, I don't like discipline yourselves or, or make sure it was always coming back to character despite I could imagine like college lecture hall, like whiteboard, just trying to keep everything straight. Well, I think we just, I think we just made what we wanted to see. Um, so I, I it's a bit more organic in that. Uh, you know, I think, look, no one's going to care about the pallet man or monkey see monkey do or, or Olivia or, or the witness. If you're not on board with the characters. And I think, I think early in season one, I think we could have done there's, uh, I wouldn't change much in 12 monkeys season one. I would take a, a harder look at the first five episodes. I think there are, are, I think we were trying to do a little bit too much too soon. Um, and we didn't breathe and live enough with, them in some ways that I think some people didn't connect to Cole early on. Um, so I think it's, I think it's just that it's trial and error. It's, you know, why do you care? Um, and it's easy to, to break a time travel. Uh, there's so many, so many. That's probably another podcast where we, we bring our writers, um, assistants on and we talk about like the 10 <laughs> things that we explored. It's so easy. To write a time travel thriller, fun thriller, but it's ultimately you get it up on the on the on the whiteboard, and you're like, "Why do I give a shit about this?" Mm-hmm. And that sometimes may mean the whole thing has to go away because there's no emotional stakes uh, for anybody. It's just a cool thing, um, and that's pro- that's 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 what it is. You got to ask yourself, "Why do I care?" Um, and if the answer is, if you're sitting there a bit too long (laughs) after that question, then you're like, all right, let's go back. Let's erase (laughs) this. Uh, Yeah. So I don't know if that answers the question. I think it's just, it's about, I think the taste of the, I mean, we had brilliant writing staff. We had brilliant. These, these guys were, I would, I would, I would do this forever with them. Um, And guys, I mean, guys and girls. Um, And it was, we were very lucky. We were very lucky. Very, very, very smart people who who always ask that question. And if we didn't, we would police ourselves. Definitely came through because you know we're crying in grocery stores when <laughs> songs. <laughs> That's <Come> funny. <laughs> Mission accomplished. That was like when I started Twelve Monkeys. I was like, if I can make them cry in the cereal aisle, I'll have done it. <laughs> Well, actually, and about music, I don't know if you were back in season one and knowing how much music would play a part in some of like the most iconic moments of the show. But, you know, whether it's kind of the Jennifer montages with 99 Red Balloons or singing Pink to freaking Hitler or, you know, basically making us think about songs from The Breakfast Club or Dirty Dancing in a way that has now nothing to do with either of those movies. Can you (laughs) talk a little bit about sort of how you guys, whether it was organically or how sort of those Jennifer scenes, like how you guys like concept wise put those together or just kind of the role of music in the show? 
Yeah, um, I just love music. I'm, I, I, uh, I'm super musically um, inclined, and, and sometimes I think it's kind of the way I break story too. Is there's a bit, it's a bit like music. There's a crescendo. There's a, there's a breath. There's a thing. There's a whatever. Um, and so I just, you know, just, you know, when you have your show, you're like, I'm going to do what I want to do. Um, <laughs> and so the score was was really important to me in season one and two is Trevor Raven, who is, you know, the score to Armageddon and all these amazing, you know, giant juggernaut films uh, to work with him so closely. And then he went on tour to go do, because, uh, you know, he's, he wrote Owner of a Lonely Heart for Yes and was the guitarist for Yes. And so he was going on tour and I found Stephen Barton, who took everything Trevor did and then completely made it its own and then sent it into the stratosphere with just an incredible score for season three and four. Um, so it's all music's always very, very important. Um, as far as the specifics, like if you're talking about 99, I, I just remember, um, think, uh, you know, in, when we were doing the, the, the season premiere, I remember knowing that there, I forget why, I forget why. Anyway, I had heard the song on the radio. I was like, well, it's German. And like I could just see Jennifer going into sort of this fugue state of whatever <laughs> to the song, and um, we were under the gun. And I remember I sent uh, Chris Monfet off. I was like, "Here's the thing: Germans come in, they're blowing everybody away. Um, the song comes on, and I think it's this, and it has something to do with the explosions." And then he he was like, "He's like, look, uh, I may be fired, but." He's like, what if it? What if everybody's heads turned into balloons <laughs> in her imagination? And I was like, no, man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so, 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 you know, he he put all that down the paper, and then I was directing it, and then it was like, well, how do we make this? How do you not? And and so a lot of time went into that sequence. Um, and when I first saw it, you should have got, you should get our editor, Drew, on. <laughs> he would, I spent so much time in a room with Drew, uh, Drew Nichols, that, I mean, he's more, literally him, Drew, and, uh, and, and Chris, uh, were, um, were such, the editors were very much uh, authors on the show as well. But when they showed me the 99 <laughs> balloon sequence, he turned and looked at me and smiled so proud. And I was so scared. This is my, this is the first thing I ever directed. I was like, cut it right now. Cut it completely out of the show. And he's like, what? Wait a minute. No. Yes. I said that. I was like, what? cut it. I, I, I said, I've jumped the shark. I went too far. He's like, no, 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 no. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. And I'm like, it's not. I, people are going to hate me. They're going to, I can't do this. I can't do this. He's like, you're just, and that, by the way, that happened. It just happens. You're just so unsure of what you've done sometimes. And so it took, I was like, all right, I'll leave it in for the cut and we'll just see how it plays. Um, and, and anyone who had saw it laughed. I, I just wasn't sure. I, I just wasn't really, really, I mean, I, I'd gone down the road. I went as far as I could with it, with the slow-mo and twirling and blowing away. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And then it was the studio and the network, like overwhelming, like we love this. And then they were like, we want to put this in all the promos and this, that, and the other thing. Um, that was like, all right, maybe this, maybe this will work. So that's the story behind that one. I can't believe it almost got cut. <laughs> I mean, that, that, ah! I've, by the way, I've said that about a great many 
scenes in the show that have turned out just fine. Um, it's just part of the process. What were other ones you were nervous about? Pink. Pink. <laughs> I'm still nervous about that one. I still don't know about that one. That one was, we're going to, like, it wasn't, we're going to go over the top, you know? Um, and I think we've earned it. We've earned our moment to do this. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so we did it. <laughs> I, I was, I was pretty nervous about that. We cut that a lot. We recorded. Emily, we produced Emily. I mean, it's like, God, there's amazing tools that you can make somebody sound like Britney Spears. Like, I was like, just the auto tuning and things. And Emily's got a great voice on her own, but you can really perfect things in post in ways that are chilling. We all can be pop stars. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I was nervous, uh, cause I, I shot that sequence of her singing and, um, and then, intercutting it and then you know if the payoff was cassie coming out in nazi lingerie uh <laughs> which you either love or you hate uh and that's just how it goes and i was all right with it oh uh, we yeah we i mean we talk it's my favorite and i don't you know maybe i either love it or hate it I, I was my favorite feminist moment on tv this year which is a year that i was feeling particularly like fired up <laughs> As a woman, but watching Cassie mow down Nazis while Jennifer sang <laughs> with that line, I'm not here for your entertainment. It's like one of my favorite moments on TV this year. Yeah, see, that's that's what I think. I think it is very much a feminist. It's that song specifically and killing Nazis in a time when Nazis seem to be coming back. Mm -hmm. And yeah, but there there were, you know, there were some even in production who were and on the staff were like, this is not a feminist moment. And the way I looked at it, and I sat down with Amanda before, you know, because it was in the script. Um, Sean wrote it in the script, and as and it was like, well, it's cool. I don't know if we're going to actually do it. And I sat down with Amanda. And I'm like, you know, we we had spent we spent three and a half seasons making her the smartest, coolest badass on the planet. God forbid we put her in some sexy sexy lingerie for thirty seconds and have her kill a bunch of evil fucks. Um, and she was. I'm so on board um, to do it that I was like, why not? Let's, let's try it. We're in our last season. Why not? Um, and I think it came out great. And I think she looked amazing, you know, and yeah, I don't know. I think, it, I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, as you point out, it's something the the show had definitely earned the way it had portrayed women for so many seasons that when it lands with the audience, and it's also so clearly Cassie's idea and choice. Right. And the song was just, that's just one of my favorite songs. And it's like an anthem. And it was also because we went through, you know, there's lists of emails of like what song it should be. But um, ultimately, it was like something that you would want to see a your heroes kick ass too. Um, and that was like, hey, um, I think this one's a good one. How about Don't You Forget About Me and These Arms of Mine? Are there, are there any stories as to how those two songs? Yeah. So the pilot originally opened up with all the footage you see at the beginning of 402, which is Cole and Ramsey moving through the apocalypse, going into the CBC, fighting the scavs and finding the watch. Um, all of that was from the pilot. We shot all that for the pilot. It was one of the first things in the coldest day in the, in the winter in Detroit in, in, in a real hospital um, that was so decimated 
that we actually cleaned it up to look, make it look like the apocalypse. That's how bad it was. Wow. And when we got down to runtime, uh, you looked at it and you're like, you, you it just didn't really get the story going. It introduced Ramsey and introduced Cole and it was great, but you kind of want to quickly get to him meeting Cassie. So the director, the editor, and Travis and I were like, well, what can we do here? And that's where we came up with, what if we see moments of it? of that sequence of them moving through the apocalypse, but we do it with this voiceover from Cole talking, you know, we, we get his voice in there and, uh, Trav and I quickly sat down and wrote the, where are you right now? Somewhere safe, warm next to someone you love bit. And we, and the editor chose that song. It's like, cause he loved that song. Mm. And we watched it and we were like, wow, that came out cool. That's great. And it, you immediately were drawn in. Um, so that's, that's the story behind that. Don't you forget about me. The honestly, that is because that song was free for us because Universal owns it entirely. So <laughs> it was something. It was like it was something, and it was perfect for Deacon. I mean, it was just perfect. I had remember hearing that. I remember somewhere in season one that that song was free, and I was like, oh, I don't think it works in these places or whatever that I was thinking about doing it, and then. When we wrote, uh, let's see, was that 11? That was 11. I, I remember putting that in the script because I knew Universal could do it. And it was just perfect for Deacon and his dad and who he was. And he's kind of like that character. And um, Todd loved it. And uh, it just ended up being this great little thing, you know? Well, especially because, I mean, part of what Deacon struggles with, you know, is he's not on the word of the witness. And he feels throughout the series that he's been you know, excluded or forgotten about. So it, it plays a bigger role in my mind as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect for him. And it's kind of like, don't you forget about me because I'm going to come back and save all your asses at the end. <laughs> right, he's a secret weapon, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. So do, do you personally have a favorite time period, like unrelated to, So we and we ask everyone who comes on, like not unrelated to plot, but that you just have the most fun with in terms of just like the visual aesthetics and costumes, et cetera? I, I really always liked the 50s. Whenever we were back in the 50s, that always felt like when we dressed, we had Colin Cassie in 50s clothes and we had um, Jay Carnes as Agent Gale. Um, the forties and the fifties were, we were able to just find locations that felt real, um, and dressing the extras up and the signage. You just, you really did feel on set like you were going back in time and the, you know, and just, it's just really cool. So I, I would have to say that. Um, however, if I think of what are my favorite days, um, my favorite days are when we were in that time machine room. And so that's probably 2043, 44, 45, whatever. And, um, being in that room, because as cool as it looks on screen, there was nothing quite like coming in to work at six o'clock in the morning with your coffee exhausted. And then you stepped into that room and that light, that blue light was on and you were like, okay, wow, this is real. It was so big. Um, we didn't end massive and it, and it, and seeing it in person did not compare. It was just, it was really amazing, an amazing set to be on. So that's probably, I don't know if that's an answer, but yeah. 
Are you ready for some listener kind of timeline plot? Um, because people will kill us if we don't ask. Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll try. Like we can I'll get try. into it? All right. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. first one is when Jones says in the finale to Cassie and Jennifer that they have to go back to their point of origin. Mm-hmm. Where exactly do they get sent back to? And how does that season one, Cassie dying at the CDC, you know, with the white streak, how does that fit in, particularly given the time shift that we had at the beginning of season two? Um, well, without having the chart up in front of me, I would say, you know, they would go back to roughly the moments that they left that timeline. You know what I mean? Um, for Cassie, I mean, she she really kind of disappeared somewhere around 2015, right? So she's probably going back to 2015, uh, 2014, 2015, somewhere in there. And then Jennifer, at the same exact time, whenever they plucked her out, they drop her kind of back in roughly the next day um, to go through. So, yeah, so the Cassie, how does that fit in? Well, yeah, because the accelerated timeline of the virus release um, – she knows it's coming and has all the baggage of what needs to happen. Um, what's the question? Is she, does she do that? Yeah. Yeah. No. So is it, is it it's cor- still early? <laughs> yeah. No, no, of course. Yeah. yeah. It, um, is it sort of a correct, like, if you inter, if when you go back and watch that scene, that's a Cassie that knows the end. Like that's a Cassie who said goodbye to Cole and thinks he's going to yes. be erased. Okay. Yes. Got it. Oh, for sure. But not entirely. That is some version of that cycle that may not have played out exactly the same way mm-hmm. because they accelerated, they made that change and accelerated the timeline. And I mean, look, you're never going to have the perfect 12 monkeys chart of timeline because of the shifts. Um, and neither would Jones. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's not like fans shouldn't feel bad about trying to like put all the puzzle pieces together in the perfect puzzle piece because it's not perfect because it's so. It's time travel and it's crazy and what motivated what, what start, what was first, what was second, was it always this way? There's no definitive answer other than, you know, Cole's the center and stuff keeps shifting around. Got it. But if you are home crying because that's Cassie talking to Cole, thinking that he's going to be erased, that's a that's a yes. correct reason to be crying. At home. Oh, for sure. Okay, cool. For sure. For sure. <laughs> You're allowed to cry there, Tina. <laughs> for sure. Okay, good. Good. I'll look forward to that. I mean, you could look at her question, did you find the Red Forest, as either she is delusional because she's on death's door, mm-hmm. or is she asking one of her more profound questions of are we in the red forest oh man yeah is it fair then to kind of put it this way when when they have to go back to finish their cycles they're inserted as you said from where they were plucked so cassie doesn't have to go back to what we saw from the very beginning of the pilot when we see the epilogue that's simply the new timeline that's not them finishing anything or doing that the first time no, no, no. That's all. One, no, once Cole gets in the machine and erases himself, you are seeing the new timeline. Right. So a lot of people I know thought that she went back to 2013, and that would not be correct. That's just new information altogether. No, no, no. That's not her going back. That the, the epilogue is is the reset timeline entirely. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And so then the other sort of timeline question, actually, beep. 
you need to do this because you can. <laughs> I, this is one of those that I have such trouble articulating. <laughs> so you go for it about Deacon. So a lot of people ask, and I know I've seen you answer it. Okay, I know, I know this question. <laughs> I know this question. <laughs> it's how much did he know and when and how and where, right? Exactly, right. basically. Okay. It's, so it's, can I tell you my understanding first? Of course. <laughs> Only because I just want to see if I got it right. Yeah. And you're so proud if you did. <laughs> I'm so proud because people want to argue with me. So it's my understanding that everything we saw him do in 2043, 2044, whenever that, you know, timeline rolled around, he didn't know anything during that time frame on screen until we get to 407. Yeah, you're right. You got it right. And he kind of has the vision of like, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. Okay. So then when Deacon has to go back, he doesn't really even go back. Jennifer plucks him out of like the present, if you will. Yeah, he's just, he's not going back. He's just he's just moving forward, but that Deacon will have to do all these things, but he will have known a bit more a lot more about what's going to happen. But we've we never see that. We've never seen that cycle. We've never seen that Deacon. We only see that Deacon after four oh seven. So in four oh eight when you are watching him in the Middle Ages, that's a deacon who knows what's going to happen. He says the call, so things are coming to a head. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to lose my head soon. And when he says, you know, I know I would do it all over again for them, I know that for sure is because he just did it. Yeah. He just went back and did it all again. He was at the Battle of Titan. He knows, you know, he knows what's going to happen. So that's the only time you're seeing that deacon. So if we want to, we're allowed to, on rewatch, like, pretend that he knows just as kind of a fun experiment. It won't hold, it won't hold water because it's, it's, you don't, you shouldn't do that in the rewatch because he doesn't, he doesn't really know yeah. how, how time sorts all that out and it's up to time. So I'll, I'll, I'll let somebody else argue that. But he, he doesn't, he doesn't know. Now, here's, here's a brain burner for you because we had to really talk about this. <laughs> so in the... In the loop-de-loop timeline, where Deacon does know everything that's going to happen in 2043, 2044, Mm -hmm. let me ask you this. What happens if you took a drive up to New York City and went to Central Park? You'd find a dead Titan there with the facility inside it. We we, we were talking about this, and we were like, oh, man, that's a brain burner. How does that work? Well... We were like, well, how do they stop everybody from knowing that there's this time traveling fortress? So the idea was that that deacon, when who goes off with old Jennifer, she's like, oh, God, she threw it, um, would have the West Seven protect that area to make sure no one would get in and have access to any of that equipment or whatever. Oh. But you never get to that. It's it's too much of a brain burner to think about because Cole climbs in the, Cole climbs in the machine and undoes it anyway. So there you go. So we can't pretend that it happened exactly the same when it comes to Deacon. I mean, everything we saw, sure, but he no, has to be doing you, it's things. just it's just not worth thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, because <laughs> I think about it a lot. <laughs> he didn't yeah. know anything. That was correct. But when he says it's going to be quite a performance. That is not referring to Deacon having to then perform, for example, in 2043, the season one events where Deacon is an antagonist. Right. He'll have to do all that. Right. We just haven't seen that version. Right. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So I have a question then about how that plays into the way that the time shifts have happened. 
So we've seen other characters before, you know, who had a time shift and, and realized or that their timeline has changed. When that happened before, for instance, Jones didn't even know her own boyfriend when she came back. It had changed in the past. They weren't aware of their kind of other timelines. So right. is that something like how did Deacon know? How did Deacon know? How did Deacon know his timeline? Because he shipped? Yeah, you know, when, so, f for instance, when, you know, they burned up the virus in 2015. Right, and Jones comes back and she's like, "I sorry, I don't remember you from my timeline. Exactly. Right? So how did Deacon stay consistent? Oh, how did Deacon, how did that, that loopy loop? There was, I have to get Sean, there's a reason for the Eklund, the Eklund bubble. Um, I forget, it was... Um, I think it was eventually that she caught up. Her brain did catch up. She did remember that line, but we didn't tell it in the story. It's like in the, the initial confusion is, I'm sorry, you weren't part of my timeline. And mm -hmm. then eventually um, it, her brain did start to catch on, but it was something to do with how close she was to the machine and the injections. It's a technical question that's not very exciting. That's okay. the answer. <laughs> Fair. So one thing that makes my brain hurt is, particularly as we're now rewatching season one, the whole name that we have for our antagonists, the Army of the Twelve Monkeys and the symbol yeah. of the demon, that is that name, that symbol in and of itself, an Ouroboros. Like, does it, is it all a circle that it comes from Hannah's story, but all, all of it, so even our name for what we're calling our antagonists. No, uh, yes and no, but not, not in the way that you think. It's not really from Hannah's story. It's more about, I mean, it comes from uh, Ethan, who Ethan gave them their names when he's like, 12, you know, 12 numbers on the clock, monkeys always marching. They're just, the numbers are always marching forward. Um, he, little Ethan says that back in the 50s. And at that point, I think it's little Ethan who, Says they're an army. We're the army of the twelve monkeys. We're the army of time, um, and so that was. But that itself wouldn't exist if you didn't have the gin and coal and going back, et cetera, et cetera. Got it. Okay. Um, so just a couple. When did you? So when you guys, you know, pilot season one. Did you guys know all along that coal is the problem and that he has to be? eventually erased from everything that is, the, you know, the story of the show. Yes. Yes. It, it, uh, to, to the extent of, yes, that was going to be the solution. And yes, they would. There was always a version. Back, way back in season one, you can ask Stacey Fung, who is our exec at Universal. Now she's at Netflix. Um, she's like, how does this thing end? And it was always, you would think he was erased. And then at the last moment, Cassie would find him again. Um and, uh, so the, that, that, that's yes. That's yes. The ways that that could have happened, um, shifted here and there. Um, for instance, you know, in season one, we did not know Titan was a time traveling fortress. We did not know. Um, we knew that they had machines or a big machine, but we never knew it was going to be that. So there are things along the way that, that, that evolve and help with that process. So, yeah. Okay. And same with Cassie releasing the virus. That was, yeah. I mean, I, I remember, I think it was, we were shooting the pilot 
we were freezing and I turned to Travis. I was like, what if they release it? And he said, what the fuck? Say what? <laughs> I was like, what, what if the people, what if it was, what if it was us for some other reason? And I remember him going, Oh, how would that work? Let's think about that. And then Travis is brilliant and spin some things. And we went down, you know, we just talked it through, but it was always an idea that was brought up again, you know, throughout the process of, you know, but something you really can't really do until the penultimate episode. But yeah, we did, we did know. In fact, oh, who is it? Um, we shot it even, um, and we cut it at the end of season three before Ethan, when Ethan says goodbye, he's like, you got to get out of here, mom, basically. Mm-hmm. And she's looking at her. He, he told her, he said, there's something you should know that in every timeline I've ever seen, it was you who released the virus. Mm. He's like, I don't know what that means. But it's something you should know. And so the end of season three was her, what the fuck? Yeah. The problem was it put way too much on her when we started breaking season the story for season four. Um, rather than have her l- learn that with the audience, which I think was the better choice, she knew it and then wasn't telling anybody at the top of season four. And it felt like, how many secrets can these people keep? It, it, so she wasn't telling that secret. And then Cole wasn't telling the secret about Marion Woods and the story. And it was just like, man, these guys, these guys haven't learned. It was too much that they were not telling everybody, you know, and then Jennifer wasn't keeping a secret about, was keeping the secret about how she's not primary anymore. She can't do the vision. And then ultimately, I think we tried, like, it was in the Western episode where, like, they just started all blurting out their secrets. I'm like, this is feeling like a bad CW scene that I can't do. (laughs) And and the problem was it was just too much for Cassie to know that. And then I think what happened is we I gave that script to charity or to oh no my my agent sent that script out as a writing sample um, the finale of season uh, three to I was I was I was I was up to run I, I can't know what I'll talk about it. but it was another it was a star, it was a science fiction franchise that I was going to do and. One of the um, assistants was a massive Twelve Monkeys fan, who who got my sample and read that part, and was and it was before we aired season four, and reached out to me and went, wait a second, Cassie releases the virus because they read that part in the script, and I was like, oh yeah, I forgot to Oops. take that out. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> so if you're lucky enough to get that writing sample, kids. Yeah, see that little little thing. It's an interesting change to your dilemma, though, because throughout the whole show, you know, we have the one versus the seven billion, and this ups the stakes in a different way because it's seven billion versus all of time. <laughs> right. right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, good stakes. Good stakes. <laughs> yeah, just when you thought you couldn't, we thought you guys couldn't turn it around on us on the one versus the many. You, you managed to again. So, and does that, is that also as early as Joan, let's say, take the pilot and Jones is asking Cole if he believes in fate. Did you all know then that it's his grandma? Um, no, we okay. did not know. We, it was, the question was asked though, um, how we knew she knew for sure way more than she was telling that, you know, uh, I think it's fate that I found you. We knew that he was going to go back and meet a young Joan. And 
when we introduced the idea of Hannah as a baby, that started, I mean, that's super early on when you see, I think you see the picture of Hannah in the Night Room episode. Do you see the baby? I forget when you really. The blanket, yeah. The blanket. The yeah, yeah, the blanket, right. That's the first. And it was at that moment, knowing that we were going to do this whole mystery about Cole's mom, Marion, that the only answer to me that felt surprising was that that was his mother. Um, so I knew in season one that the baby was going to be Cole's mother. So, but so I'd say by the end of season one, I was, I was fairly sure that that was the path we would go down and, you know, unsure if we could make that work. But, uh, I don't know if you've listened to the other, po- there's a podcast where we had Brooke on. Yeah. On Talking Monkeys. Yeah. And they're like, when did you know? And she's like, I knew it the first day I walked on the set. I knew I was Cole's mom. It blew my mind that you guys did that. And I think it's incredible because it adds, nuance to her performance uh, mm-hmm. my question uh, in that regard would be did everybody else know or was it only brooke uh the writers a lot of the most a lot of the writers knew i think uh yeah i think i had told you know some couple of close friends and family um about it uh, you know but it, it's interesting I, I, and it was sort of unintentional at the end of season three that a lot of people walked away thinking jennifer was his mom because of the story and right. the symbol and all the thing. I don't know, man. Some people were like, it should be Jennifer. I'm like, uh, that's <laughs> or it should be Cassie. <laughs> okay. Oh, and, and, and there's totally, somebody can totally that. I just don't know how satisfying that would have been on this show. Did you the know. actors know though? Did Aaron know? Yes, because Aaron at one point came to me and he was, he was like, I really think, we need, it was, you know, we were talking about love triangles and he was like, you know, maybe there's a love triangle. Maybe he's like attracted to, to <laughs> Hannah. I'm like, mm. so yeah, there were times when uh, we had to tell them. I think, I know Barbara knew. We told Barbara right away. In fact, the first thing we did was take a picture of uh, the three of them at some point. I forget, but yeah, with Elliot. I think it was the three of them, the, whole, the Jones family uh, that I, I have never put up. I should. Oh, man. Wow. So Are she- you guys bored yet? You guys have got to be bored. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> we started a podcast to just talk about <laughs> rewatching this show. <laughs> I guess. I mean, you can leave if you yeah. must. <laughs> no, 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 no. We no. have more questions. Yeah. Oh. We want to hear about what is going to be our next likely TV obsession. So we want definitely want to hear about your new projects. Bef- right before we do, are there any other kind of big Easter egg clues that you guys are still kind of waiting for for us, like the audience, to clue into on rewatch. There, the, you know, uh, there's the one I spoke of, which is that the true witness, the the, the one uh, I, I think I said on another podcast, which was uh, the sort of alpha primary, the old guy back in the Middle Ages, basically calls out that Cassie is the true witness. Mm-hmm. You know. But, you know, that, that was a major one. I think there are more. I think there's actually, um, once you start getting into season two, um, but you guys have picked up on a lot, like, you know, um, so I have to go, I haven't, you guys are talking about things that it's amazing to hear these rewatch podcasts. I'm like, oh yeah, oh yeah, I forgot we did, we did that, we said that. I had, at some point, uh, when I, I don't know when, I, I need to rewatch the show and, and I, I always wanted to do like a full write up like an article or something of here are all the Easter eggs in the show that, that, that were showed you 
you know, we knew what was up. There are little things in the visions and things, um, like, you know, anyway, yes, there are, but even there are some that even I've forgotten about. Got They're it. so like, if you look past Cassie uh, to that painting there, you'll see a red leaf or, you know what I mean? Things like that. So after I really, yeah. Ah, fun. Okay. All right. I told Tina you were going to say that you would wait on that question till we finished. <laughs> <laughs> see what no, we no, missed. No. I was like, he's not going to tell us until he sees if we figure. You guys it out. are thorough. <laughs> you guys are awesome. Like I was like, oh wow, they've picked up on a lot of stuff. So yeah, great. Thank uh, you. Thank you. I feel better about my obsessive freeze framing now. <laughs> <laughs> so, what can you tell us about your new project projects? What can you uh, tell us about it? Well, I'm writing two at once right now, which is such a brain burner. Uh, and it's, um, but they're so different and they, they are satisfying different parts of me within in really great ways. I'm writing, uh, a, a show called Apex. It's a, uh, pilot for CBS through Sony that, uh, is about a woman who is the daughter of a serial killer who to this day still has the same instincts as her father, but is keeping them at bay. Ooh. And teams up with this out-of-the-box, washed-up uh, agent at the FBI to who who is pushing her to use those instincts. But the more she uses them, the more that she wants to be a this predator, you know. Um, and so she's this predator of predators kind of thing. And it really what it explores is nature versus nurture. You know, it's very much. In the veins of if you're a 12 Monkeys fan, that season three thing is like how much, how much of our parents are we? You know, how much is genetic? How much of, how much of the nurture, the family of how we're raised are, you know, or the people in our lives make us. And so, yeah, it's really cool. It's a, it's a, it's a darker, you know, it's a show about serial killers and not like Dexter in, the, in that way either because she is a psychopath with a with an with an empathy, empathy switch. She's a really interesting character. So she has feelings. She has a family, but she's torn between these two things that she wants to be. So yeah, we'll see. It's funny when it was announced. There was a couple of shitty people on Twitter. One of them was a journalist who was like, "Oh, I'm so disappointed. You went from telling this genre sci-fi show to a CBS procedural." I was like, "Dude, you haven't even." Why don't you read the pilot that I haven't written yet before you decide oh, <laughs> that it's man. not worth your time? It's like it's, it it very much digs into a lot of the themes that were so prevalent in Bob Monkeys. So we'll see. Uh, so that's that one. And then on the other side of the spectrum entirely is one of my good friends who I went to college with is named Seth Graham Smith, who he wrote – Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies. Yeah. And Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Slayer. And uh, he produced the movie It and a giant career on his own. When 12 Monkeys wrapped, he called me and he was like, hey, um, you know, I, I brought you up at this meeting at Fox and I want to do this thing with a vampire. It takes place in the present day. And I was like, I'm not a vampire guy. And he's like, that's why I think you should do this. And the more we talked about it, He's like, just, I, you know, he, he was so cool about, I, I want to give you the freedom to do what you want to do. And I was like, all right, I want to try it. And so I wrote this, <laughs> I wrote this pitch. This may be the most fun 
thing that I've ever written. This tonally is much more, I think of the most fun episodes of 12 Monkeys in like a heisty kind of like bantery way. This is just a blast to write. It's um, about this 500-year-old vampire who for the last 40 years has been locked up by the government, you know, Lecter-esque, and these series of murders, these, these patterns of murders are coming into the world again that are starting to suggest that vampires who were once driven away are now coming back into society and uh, wrecking havoc and there's a conspiracy effect. And it there's this intrepid young FBI agent who is way more like a Zoe Deschanel type. Uh, she's, she's Dana Scully, but by way of Liz Lemon. <laughs> And, That's a lot of awesome. <laughs> and so she she put it together, and they're like, great, we're going to team you up with this vampire. And she's like, uh, say fucking what? And, <laughs> and it's, it's much more of, I'm much more of a Potter girl than a Twilight girl, so I don't want to do this. And so it's, and he is this great character who's been locked up for 40 years, who doesn't know culture, so he's this great fish out of water, who hasn't seen society, and uh, and he's just full of life and charm and she's a social misfit who really hates society right now and doesn't hate Instagram, hates these things. And so she's introducing him back into the world. And then on top of it, there's, it's a, there's a team dynamic and it's a thriller and it's scary and there's horror and it's a lot of comedy and it's just so much fun. So that's, that's that one. That's called the uh, last American vampire. The other one's called apex. So when are we going to see you credited on our TVs again? Oh God, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It maybe I mean the, both of these are broadcast pilots, and at any moment could strike out. You know, they, it's it's in fact more likely that they won't make these Ugh. than they will because they order so many scripts every year, and of those scripts, they only make so many pilots, and of those pilots that they make, there's only so many slots that they can broadcast a show. So your odds are stacked against you to begin with. But I, I really love both of these. So, you know, um, I'm glad to have, have done them either way. So, uh, we'll see. We'll see. God, well, our thing, I mean, they both sound awesome. So. I know. I hope soon. <laughs> and when we're done, when we're done with this, rewatching this, then we'll need another podcast to start. So, yeah. <laughs> so, final question just for 12 Monkeys fans. Are there any, like, for example, Funko Pops or graphic novels, cons, anything anything coming up folks maybe have something to look forward to? The word of the witness, you know? <laughs> I would say that the fans really need to drive that. We have, you know, the we released the Blu-rays and the DVDs. They they weren't like giant sellers, the soundtracks. Um, and there is some merchandise available to Universal. That's awesome. But... So if the fans want a Funko Pop, I should do. They need to hammer Funko to do it. I've I've been told through that Funko has said no a dozen times. What Universal told me. So uh, keep hammering them. That's <laughs> what I would say. And and uh, which is weird because I go on, you know, I go into these stores and I'm like, they made a Funko for that this thing that no one's ever, you know. So. But, you know, we don't have a giant fandom, you know, to be fair. So they just have to see enough of a demand to, to do something like that. I think eventually a word of the witness, probably print, will will come to light. It's just a question of 
you know, it's, it's, it's very big. I think it's bigger than some people think. Some people are like, oh, it's just like a poster. No, it's like three times the size of a poster to do it the right way. Uh, so we'll have to see. You'd have to get someone to print those and then, you know, do they cut the edges and age it or is it just a flat poster and nobody cares kind of thing? There's just a lot of questions. And how many people are actually going to buy the word of the witness? Is it, is it 500 people? Is it 5,000 people? You know, what makes it worth it? The thing that I would very much love to do, and again, I think it has to be driven by fans or something to find a publisher. Right? There's so much in the art department and the photos. Behind, I'd love to do a behind-the-scenes book of the art of the show and the costumes and all the newspaper articles that we did and all these timelines were really written by our writers. Um, there's so much to be mined there and put out for consumers. I'd love to do a book of that. Yeah. But, you know, we're all, we're all still busy, you know, working stuff. So it's not something that we, we, um, we've doggedly pursued, but, uh, I, you know, if fans want to see those things, fans can make anything happen. Fans can bring back shows. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like with the right, the right voice and droves and whatnot. So, yeah. All right, so now we have our to-do list. Got it. Yeah, I was like, well, I hear Tina writing. I know which direction we're yeah. going in. So you guys. Lobby. Thank you so much. This is, I mean, honestly, we're just really grateful. Such a treat for us and such a treat for your very, very passionate fans who just love the show. So thank you so much for giving so much of your time. Thanks for letting me talk about Bandcamp for, uh, you know, <laughs> another an hour and a half. So yeah, I love it. Ah! <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> We're going to have to go off and do our countdown to calm again. That was amazing. We hope you guys enjoyed that as much as we did. There were some amazing stories and we're just really, really grateful. We hope you guys enjoyed that. Just some programming notes. Our next episode will be our rewatch of episodes 106 through 108. That's The Red Forest, The Keys, and Yesterday. And Professor Aaron will be joining us for that. And in the meantime, please get your questions in for Mr. Todd Stashwick by uh, November 30th. You can submit those to us on Twitter at 12MRewatchPod or by email wordofthewitnesses at gmail.com, and that will be coming to you in early December. Until then, we'll see you soon.